there's a bunch of famous people over the years who said, you know, to be an activist means by definition to be an optimist. There have been other periods of American history where things look bleak and we were able to pull it together. I feel like I've witnessed over the years lots of success when people stick together and work collectively and trust each other, be positive about what America could be. Things can't be different. It doesn't have to be like this. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Robert Fox, is the kind of person I love highlighting in this podcast. He's been the longtime chief operating officer at MoveOn, at Greenpeace, and in several places in the labor movement. Robert is now consulting with progressive organizations in areas of his expertise, that is growth strategies, fundraising, financial best practices, operations excellence, and problem solving. I really enjoyed getting to know Robert and hope you will listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Robert Fox at Robert Fox Consulting. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Robert, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Robert Fox, and I am a nonprofit fundraising finance and operations consultant. I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland. I started my consulting business about a year ago, but for the previous eight years, I was the chief operating officer at MoveOn. I supervised all the fundraising and financial management, governance, risk management for the organization. And during my time there, we grew from about $7 million a year in income to a peak of $64 million. We had went from like 20 staff to over 100 full-time staff. Um, before that, I was chief operating officer at Greenpeace USA. And prior to that, I spent about 17 years almost as a labor union organizer. The last seven years were deputy director at Working America, which is the AFL-CIO's community organizing affiliate. And we built a, a enormous door-to-door Canvas operation that focused on working class communities around the country. 1,500 organizers knocking on doors per night at our peak. I think it was the second employee when it first started. So that was a lot of fun helping build that under the leadership of Karen Nussbaum. And I spent four years prior to that at the AFL. I started the AFL-CO's online organizing program and led that for almost four years. And I spent close to six years prior as an organizer for Unite back in the 90s, which at the time was the Garment and Textile Workers Union. By the time I left, I was the deputy organizing director. I helped manage their national organizing program and ran a lot of campaigns around the country, new organizing, mostly in distribution centers, textile facilities, some garment, mostly in immigrant communities, Spanish-speaking communities, and did a couple of years of major donor fundraising for a video production nonprofit in New York City. And then for the 
six years before that, I was a photojournalist, also in New York City, and ended up being the executive director of a uh, photojournalism cooperative. It was a worker-owned cooperative, so owned by the photographers and staff of the agency. And we would sell photographs to the mainstream press. We had 500 photographers around the world. We would sell photographs to you know the New York Times and Newsweek and the big book publishers and stuff. And we would use the money that we made from them to sell the same photographs at a subsidy rate to political organizations and nonprofits and environmental groups and peaceniks and stuff like that. And that was actually really fun too. We distributed the work of other like-minded agencies around the world, including, for example, we had the exclusive rights in North America to the African National Congress's guerrilla photo archive. So when Mandela was in prison, you know, they were smuggling film out of the country to us. We would sell that in the United States and then send them the money. And we had similar relationships around the world with a lot of different political organizations. So got a little taste of business, although it was very, I do not recommend photography as a career. It's very difficult, but it led to a lot of adventures. So that's kind of a top line of my work history. And it's a lot. It made me calculate that you're at least out of your 20s. Uh, slightly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also that you must have learned an awful lot about how different enterprises that are part of the progressive ecosystem operate. I mean, right in the middle of a bunch of them. So probably knowing a lot more than a lot of people about, about that world. Well, as we were just discussing a moment ago, the older I've gotten, the more I realize I don't know. And I appreciate something you mentioned a minute ago, which was knowing what you don't know is actually the key to success in a lot of activities. But yeah, I've really, over the years, you know, I was a really, um, I think I was a really great union organizer, for example. And, you know, I worked in a lot of my work over the years in photography. And then subsequently it was, you know, really in communications. I think I was, I really enjoyed that. I think I was able to make a lot of contributions there. Over time, I began to feel like the reason that progressive organizations lose in America to Goldman Sachs and Walmart and Amazon and their allies is, I think, not because we don't have good ideas or we can't communicate them effectively. We just don't have enough power. Our organizations are not big enough. We don't run them well enough. A lot of that's on us. Like It's not the Koch brothers' fault that we can't run our organizations well. And I began to take the view that until we can build organizations that can scale to the scale of our opponents, we're probably going to continue to not be successful in building a more just society in America, building a society that prioritizes racial equity and economic justice for everyone. That's in many ways become my mission in the second part of my career. And I get enormous joy, I've realized, with at the end of the day, my spreadsheet adds up exactly the way it's supposed to. I can hold something in my hand and feel like I've created something concrete. And that I've realized that gives me a lot of satisfaction. But also, I think just strategically, we have to be better about how we run our organizations. And you know, we can win and we can inspire people and we can mobilize people. But I think we have to think bigger and hold ourselves more accountable. If you had to put a finger on what the most common difficulty that progressives have with scaling their organizations and running them well, what are the things that tend to come up? What are the problems? Yeah, I don't think they're that unique necessarily to progressive organizations. I think it's been widely remarked on that the nonprofit sector as a group, and you know, I include campaigns and unions in that, generally don't value management skills, management training, leadership development, 
you know, there's been some attempts in recent years, I think, to address that movement wide. For-profit companies, they, the owners, the shareholders have realized they make more money if their managers have trainings, if they have MBAs and they know how to be effective at extracting every penny of surplus labor value, you know, out of their employees. In the nonprofit sector, everyone, you know, people don't join organizations because they want to become a great manager. They join because they want to make a difference on the program issue that the organization is addressing, I think, often. So I think we undervalue those skills as a movement. And I think there's plenty of opportunity for improvement there. Can you tell me a little bit about the family you grew up in and how your early education takes you to Harvard to get a degree in sociology? What's that beginning part of your journey? I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I was actually the first generation of kids that went to integrated schools there. My parents were not openly racist and I don't think viewed themselves as racist in any way. And I think they were kind of horrified at some of the things they saw around them. I grew up in a pretty segregated society in a lot of ways. And when I got older and started to realize, you know, the history of the freedom fighters in Birmingham and other places in the South that had fought for the civil rights movement, I began to wonder like, well, gee, like what did my parents' generation do? And I remember asking people of that generation, white people, I'm white. What did you do during the civil rights movement? This was like in the late seventies. It's after George Wallace, right? Barely. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he had yeah. kind of resurrected himself. He'd run for president. He'd run for president again after getting shot. And but yeah, he, and then he right. had a sort of like apology tour, essentially in the mid seventies. And I remember being terribly disappointed to hear from older white people, you know, oh, we knew segregation was wrong. I knew segregation was wrong. I heard people say at times. But I, I, I didn't do anything about it. Like, I didn't know what to do. And I remember at the time thinking, that is such a lame answer. That is a terrible answer. When I was like 12 years old, and I, was, and I swore to myself, I never want to have to give that answer to my own kids someday in the future. And so that I thought about that a lot over the years. And I really thought about that a lot, especially when my own kids were born in 1998 and in 2000. And I was working at the AFL-CIO and the second war in Iraq started under Bush too. And at that time I was, was, the war was gearing up and I read an autobiography of Daniel Ellsberg, who of course, the Marine Corps officer who worked in the Johnson and the Nixon administration and arguably carried out one of the greatest acts of civil disobedience in American history. You know, he smuggled out the Pentagon papers from the White House. He risked the death penalty. He was basically charged with the death penalty, went underground, and eventually got acquitted on essentially a technicality. But he took an enormous risk to try and stop the war in Vietnam. And I remember reading his autobiography where he said in the book, people asked him, well, why did you do this? Why did you take this enormous risk? And he said, the reason why is because people always underestimate the impact of their actions on future generations. People, when they're doing some kind of activity, they always think, oh, maybe it'll impact this thing going on around me right now. But they don't imagine that like, 30 years in the future, 50 years in the future, people will look back on it and it will have a, a major impact. And that that really got me to thinking, okay, well, the, the war is starting in Iraq. I felt like I knew it was wrong. I thought it was immoral and I should do something about it. Mostly because I didn't want to have to answer to my kids, you know, who were infants. Well, what did you do during the Iraq war? And, well, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't really do anything. So I went down the day the war started and lay in the street with a bunch of other opponents of the war to get arrested, you know, blocking H Street in front of the White House. 
And honestly, I'd, I had been involved in civil disobedience a number of times before that. Mostly it's kind of a staged thing. As a white person, you know, you can kind of count on it being a fairly smooth experience. But this time felt different. The cops were there on horseback. They had riot gear on. They had billy clubs. Honestly, I thought they were going to beat our asses. But it seemed like the right thing to do, even though I wasn't sure what impact it would have. So I'm laying there in the street and the cops come and it's very stressful. And someone just runs out of the crowd and lays down on the ground next to me. And I look over and it's actually Daniel Ellsberg himself. And so the two of us got to spend the day in jail together. Wow. You know, in DC. Like, and they actually hogtied us with our hands and feet handcuffed, you know, to each other. That got me thinking a lot about, you know, what he said originally. Like years later, you know, his actions from back in the 1971 or whatever really had a big impact on me. And I think that's true today as well of the work that we do now. It feels hopeless sometimes. You look at the rise of Trump and the rise of racism and the exploitation that we see around us. And you think, how are we ever going to stop this? But history doesn't change overnight. It's something that takes sometimes decades and you just don't know what impact your work will have in the future. So that to me goes back to my earliest you know, thinking about politics from when I was a kid. Sociology often uh, as a subject touches on a lot of that kind of material. Did you have a senior thesis? What kind of things were you looking at as an undergraduate? And how did it fit with that or did it not? You know, I studied community organizing by the time I finished school and I worked as a community organizer in Roxbury, Massachusetts, the last year that I was in school. So I was going from Cambridge as a student and then going door to door in Roxbury, which, you know, at the time was historically African-American community, which had been the center of the busing riots. You know, people in Roxbury had had their kids like beaten by mobs when they sent them to school, to integrated schools, not even 10 years before. And I was amazed at um, how welcoming people were in the community to me, really stuck with me. We were in Roxbury four, four days a week, knocking on doors all day long on foot. And then we would go canvassing in the richest neighborhoods in the country two days a week to be able to like fund the community organizing operation. So that was like going to Brookline and, you know, these very wealthy, all white neighborhoods. Just the contrast, you know, was was really head splitting. And, you know, I don't think it's really changed that much in America. Honestly, it's gotten worse. I mean, inequality is worse now in America than it was in the mid 1980s. And it doesn't have to be this way. Other countries do it differently. It's not like there's a law of nature that says a tiny group of people should have all the money. Tell me about how you found yourself in the labor movement. You had talked a little bit about it. My first experience in the labor movement was um, working as a researcher. A summer, I had a summer job as like a lab tech at Harvard Medical School. At the time, there had been a years-long effort to organize the workforce at, at Harvard. I think in the end, when they finally won, it was the largest, I believe, the largest union organizing victory in the United States in the 1980s. And Harvard carried out all sorts of dastardly tactics to try and prevent people from organizing, including in the lab where I worked. My understanding was just before I got there, when they'd had the, the one of the first union votes, the, the guy who ran the lab, as everyone is lined up to vote, stood up in front of all the workers and said, if I find out any one of you vote for the union, I will guarantee that you get fired which of course is completely illegal. And it's one of the reasons why that and subsequent union busting efforts by Harvard got overturned by the National Labor Relations Board. They eventually won. But I did get involved as a volunteer organizer 
you know, on my campus to try and help the workers organize. So I had some experience with the labor movement, but several years later, I was working as a photographer. And even though I was involved in this photo agency that had a very political mission, and I viewed it in that context, like that's how I experienced the work was we're sort of creating media that can be used for social change. And that was sort of the ethos of the agency. It did feel like one step removed for me, like you're sort of photographing other people doing stuff and you're not supposed to be doing stuff yourself. And it kind of felt a little futile sometimes. So I had a friend who was an organizer for Unite who was working on a union organizing campaign. I'll never forget this. It was in outside of Providence, Rhode Island. It was a seatbelt fabric company called Hope Webbing. I was fluent in Spanish and she asked me to help them out on the campaign because most of the workers were immigrants, virtually all of them, 90% or more were immigrant workers. And so I spent a week or so going door to door and talking to workers and helping them organize the union, helping the workers organize the union. In a matter of days, my recollection is something like 70% of the workers signed cards saying they wanted a union in this company. And when the company found out about it, Literally on the first day, they fired something like 50 of the 600 workers, all immigrants, and they had the Providence police go through the factory over a period of hours, one by one, and they identified every person they could find that had a button on or anything related to the unit, and they escorted them out in front of everyone else individually. And it just seemed so barbaric. And of course, it was illegal. Of course, years later, as expected, as the company knew it would be. The election was overturned for NLRB violations, National Labor Relations Board violations. But, you know, they just viewed it as a cost of doing business. They were able to delay for a number of years, giving people health insurance and treating people fairly and paying them fairly. And the penalties were virtually non-existent. But between, you know, that and my experience from community organizing work when I was a student, it made me feel like I could be more helpful to the movement as an organizer than as a photographer. Of course, the... Labor movement has been in decline most of our lives, not in every category, but sort of getting smaller. You worked at Unite. You worked subsequently, as you mentioned, at bigger and bigger jobs. What what were you learning from the inside about the labor movement and how were you feeling like whether it was doing a, a good job or could be doing a better job, like evaluate what you were seeing? I mean, I think that workers, you know, want a better life in America and unions are really one of the most effective ways for people to achieve that. And I think that in situations where workers have an actual voice in their workplace, people want unions. I was just reading the other day that the rate of people in America now who want to have a union in their workplace in surveys is the highest it's ever been since I think like the 1940s or something. Like it's almost 70 percent. There's a big uptick, yes. Yeah, they would like to have a union in their workplace. Yet unions, workers are unsuccessful in organizing campaigns over 1,000 employees, 19 out of 20 times in America. So only 5% of campaigns with more than 1,000 workers are successful. And it's because we have labor laws that completely favor employers and there's no penalties for breaking the law. I mean, a number of years ago when I was working full-time as an organizer, human rights campaign you know, the human rights organization did their annual report on the United States. And as it had for many years, the U.S. was cited for two main human rights violations. One was the death penalty, since we're one of the only countries in the world 
unfortunately, that still has the death penalty. And secondly, it was the violation of workers' right to organize, which is you know enshrined in the United Nations and other countries recognize. You know, we have this sort of legalistic system which you know s- systematically disempowers a worker voice in the economy. That was the real takeaway for me, and that's partly what led me to my current consulting work and a lot of the other work that I did over the years. How do we build power for workers and how do we build power for working people and those who care about racial justice in a way that can overcome these kind of systemic obstacles that we face? You mentioned working on online mobilization, working families network. That was very early in political online work. What was going on back then? When my kids were born, it was hard to live in hotel rooms around the country as an organizer, you know, for months at a time, and ended up taking a job at the AFL to help start their first online organizing program. This is late 1999, beginning of 2000. We built the first shared system for email communication across the whole labor movement. I think it's grown now to something like 9 million email addresses. You know, we got 600 different union organizations all kind of on the same system so we could share messaging and collaborate together. And when I first got there, a lot of the leadership were having their emails printed out for them and like brought to them in a folder. And we had other folks who had, you know, their business cards would only have postal address and not the email address because they didn't want to like undermine the postal service. And people didn't really understand the, I think initially at least, the possibilities that it represented for organizing. But labor movement caught on quick, and they I think the union movement has shown a lot of examples of using the internet very successfully from in the early days up until now. One of the first things that we did, you know, we ended up building this enormous network of folks via email. And this was like in the early 2000s, like companies also were not used to being targeted um, or campaigned against online. And I remember we had a system where you could ask people to send a fax to employer was treating their workers unfairly. And I remember sending out an email, you know, to, I don't remember how many people, hundreds of thousands of people asking them, here's this employer, they're treating people unfairly, please send a fax to their corporate headquarters. And once this thing got rolling, you couldn't turn it off, it wouldn't turn off. And I remember getting these begging, the company immediately caved to the demands of the workers. And I remember getting a call after call from their from their managers saying, please, can you turn this off? Our fax machine just running for days. You know, <laughs> thousands of faxes just pouring out day after day after day. But now we couldn't turn it off. There wasn't like nowadays where, you know, it wouldn't matter if you got a million emails, they just go into a folder, right? Yeah, it, it was a real tool of doing business. What was Working America? Working America started as a way of... Um, you know, providing an opportunity for people who did not have a union on their job to join the labor movement, you know, as a, as a member. And the, the idea was that, you know, your boss should not be the only one who decides whether or not you can have a union on the job. Traditionally, the labor movement measures membership and through whether or not you have a contract with your employer. And, you know, that's certainly the goal that in many ways is the most valuable for the labor movement. But, you know, people who live next door to union members but who don't have a union in their workplace understand that, the, oh, gosh, their neighbor has good retirement benefits and good health care and they've got paid time off and they have paid sick leave. And I don't have any of those things because I don't have a union at work. So Working America built an, and still has you know, an enormous door to door operation talking to people um, about their rights as workers and how to get them engaged in the labor movement 
you know, as activists, as leaders in their community. And it was enormously successful. I mean, we built over over three million members focused on key states um, that were highly relevant politically. Ohio, particularly, was one of the places where we had a, a very large operation. It's still a very inspiring movement. I mean, they've focused over the years historically on trying to talk to white workers who I think are often the target of a lot of company confusion and a lot of confusion by our corporate opponents. Like America, I'm a big soccer fan. We were talking about, you and I were just talking about soccer a minute ago. Um, and I'm really excited the World Cup is coming up, you know, here in November next month. And the U.S. team, you know, is in the World Cup this time, but you know, we're definitely not favored to win. And we may not be the World Cup winners in soccer, but we're definitely the World Cup winners in pitting people against each other based on race and based on other things to keep companies in power. Like that is, that's America's like great achievement in terms of uh, labor relations. And so work America was an effort to overcome that. How do we get everybody, whether they're in a union or not, thinking about what they should have, good health care, minimum wage for everybody, health and safety on the job, basic things that we should be able to expect as citizens. And that was a good stretch of your life all of that time in those sequence of jobs in labor. Why did you leave? Um, well, I had an opportunity to work at Greenpeace. You know, I had spent 17 years almost in the labor movement. In many ways, it seemed like the time where I could make a contribution in a different way. I grew up uh, camping and hiking and fishing and, you know, being outdoors is really important to me. And, you know, climate change is arguably the most existential risk that we face, you know, as 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 humans on Earth. And it, it the importance of it is, uh, you know, is vast. And was, so, was Greenpeace focused on climate change back when you were there? Yeah, yeah, it was. And that I mean, not just that, but that was the primary you know, that was the, you know, the main issue that the organization was addressing. And, you know, like so many people, I was always inspired by Greenpeace's nonviolent direct action tactics and the commitment that they demonstrated. And it was a real opportunity to be able to, to play a role in that. And you were chief operating officer. What did that mean you did? I supervised the finance, HR, the um, legal work, governance. So, you know, a lot of the legal work around the nonviolent direct action activities. So that was certainly eye-opening for me. Um, but yeah, I have great respect for the commitment and dedication of the activists at Greenpeace and the members. Did it feel like a different kind of environment than labor had been or pretty similar in who worked there and the kind of culture of the organization? I mean, there were a lot of similarities. The main similarity was the opponents were the same, right? So I know that there's been much made of Oh, supposedly like, oh, the labor movement, the environmental movement, you know, don't see eye to eye or can't work together. But, you know, the coal companies are the ones that were most responsible for carbon emissions in the United States for for such a long period. And they were a big focus of Greenpeace's work when I was there. But trust me, nobody in America understands the terrible and outrageous behavior of the coal companies more than the mine workers union and the people who work in the mines. Like they know better than anyone the extent to which, you know, these companies will go to get their way. And I think there's a very obvious alliance there that to me felt very consistent. You had talked earlier about like when you're taking pictures or selling pictures, feeling a little bit divorced from the direct action, sort of laying down on the ground in front of a war effort. Did you feel as someone doing operations 
And did it feel like you were, were filling that need that you had to be working on societal change because you were working for, for an organization that was, or did you feel a little more behind the scenes than you liked? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've always really enjoyed organizing work and the face-to-face contact. Working America's work, you know, almost entirely door-to-door. A lot of the organizing work was successful because that was how we prioritized things. And, you know, that's what worked. Like you have to, you have to spend the time to build relationships with people. Like that's how you win. That certainly is still very motivating for me. But I think as I said at the beginning, like ultimately I became convinced that the reason all these movements have really had a hard time making progress is because we haven't been successful always at scaling our organizations to the size of our opponents. And so that's a different skill than the one-on-one communication. So over the last dozen years or so, as I've really focused on organizational scaling and management in my current consulting practice and also in some of my previous organizational roles, I have focused largely on the organizational development. And yeah, at times I do, I have missed that. I have missed the face-to-face. And in fact, after Trump won, um, like in so many places in my community, you know, there developed some localized responses to Trump that were not necessarily connected to like the bigger political world. So I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right outside of D.C. It's right on the border of D.C., Maryland suburb. It's a very diverse place. When Trump began targeting immigrants, some some of my neighbors, you know, just put together an informal group here in Tacoma Park where they would deliver food to people. They would collect, collect and buy groceries and they would ask for volunteers. In fact, they went to the, the bus station in Silver Spring and they handed out leaflets for buses that they knew were coming from the border, from the Texas border, and asked people, if you need help, call this number. Like, it was that simple. It was just, you know, people are showing up, they don't have any resources. And so, you know, we would just go and hand them a bag of groceries. That was it. There was no bigger political purpose for that. Ultimately, there was no organizational strategy behind it. It was just, Trump is targeting immigrants. We're kind of living through this wave of like racism and hostility. And, you know, let's like treat our neighbors a little better. That just felt like something I could do personally and that I could do in my own community. And also I could just do face to face. I could look someone in the eye and talk to them. And that was for me very motivating, even at a time when, you know, pretty much all my work, as you're you're noting, was on fundraising and organizational growth. And I think ultimately that's how we're going to win. But yeah, it can be hard sometimes if that's the only thing you're doing. And also, I think it divorces you from the human aspect of the work. I mean, if the problem that you put your finger on earlier is not enough power, and if you're thinking about the environmental world, the sum of all the environmental organizations versus the sum of all of the big polluters, let's say, it's not a fair game in terms of resources. It's not even close, probably, right? And you see that you know, in labor versus the corporate world. What is the antidote to that imbalance? How do you, in your view, write that and make it something that is winnable from the side of everyday people? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, I think it's a lot of, I don't think it's probably one thing. I don't think sometimes you hear people say, oh, the key, you know, the we're going to win if we do this, really focus on this one thing. I'm not, 
as I've gotten older, I've become less convinced of that. I think you and I were discussing before the call of like when I was 22, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I thought I knew everything. And as I've gotten older, I realize how much I don't know. And that's been a uh, humbling experience for me. So I don't know that I would put my finger on just one thing, but I think there's a lot of different ways to contribute. One of the things that I'm excited about that, I've, that I think has gotten results at times, in just in terms of thinking about scale, is some of the shareholder activist strategies that have been successful in recent years. And I'm thinking of things like the group Engine Number One, which is a basically like a group of investors that bought a bunch of shares in Exxon and was able to put two people on their board who pledged to prioritize focusing on climate change as part of Exxon's mission. How do you change some of these institutions from within? I mean, you see the, uh, I spent a lot of time in Florida. It's one of my favorite places. And, you know, it was heartbreaking to see the hurricane that came through recently and hit Fort Myers in that area. I spent a lot of time in that region and that's happened over and over again. And, you, you know, you read these stories about the people not having insurance at all, or the insurance that they do have is now going to be so expensive that especially lower income people won't be able to rebuild their homes or they won't be able to move to the area. There's all these companies, these insurance companies that have systematically undervalued their risk on their insurance policies because of climate change. So how do you begin to get our economy realizing like climate change has very significant financial risk way beyond just how expensive is gas. Don't take it from me, take it from your insurance company who are now, you know, they're going to refuse to issue insurance to rebuild in, in dangerous areas. And that's going to have a huge impact. So, I mean, that's not something that most activists would think about like, oh, let's focus on the insurance rates or whatever. But I think there's a lot of different types of strategies that as a movement, we need to be thinking about to be successful. I mean, it feels like part of the answer to the question of power is in the aggregation of a lot of people into organizations that let them act in concert. Move On, which you went to next, is doing that. They're collecting activists. It has a pretty interesting story. I've talked to a number of people with different angles on it. Tell me about your move to Move On and like what that different world, also an aligned world in, in a lot of regards, was like. I'm proud to say I was one of Move On's very first members when the organization, you know, began in the late 1990s. And I'd always been a supporter and a contributor to Move On and considered myself a member, you know, from the start. And, you know, like many people, I was very inspired by Move On's decentralized vision and its trust in the members. And, you know, Move On had built this enormous network of activists for many years, but now as well. There's Move On members in every single county in the United States, literally every county in the United States. And... Move on can organize one to two thousand local events, in-person events all over the country, you know, with 48 hours notice. We did that repeatedly during the Trump era and under the leadership of Rana Epting, who's the executive director now and the management team and the staff there. You know, they continue to do amazing work. And I just I still find it enormously, enormously inspiring. That's an example of the type of scaled thinking, you know, that we need as a movement. And in Move On's case, Move On has been very effective at leveraging technology and leveraging communication capacity, uh, you know, to give everyday people a chance to be involved in politics and be involved in making America a better place. So I still find it tremendously inspiring and I have a lot of respect for the leadership there. I don't think people who sit outside of Move On or aren't really steeped in 
this world that you've been have any sense of like what has to happen behind the scenes to allow that kind of ability to organize people into thousands of events or maintain a giant email list and the fundraising to support that staff and all of the creativity and ability to change over time that they've exhibited. Tell me a little bit about like what you learned about what it takes. Well, I mean, you mentioned the fundraising. I mean, Move On is supported almost exclusively by small donors. The average contribution is $13. Literally millions of people support the organization. You know, they've got a very small percentage of the funding comes from large donors. They don't take any government money. There's no corporate money allowed. Um, so for one thing, uh, you know, like the labor movement, virtually all the funding is internal from the members. It doesn't face some of the same pressures that some nonprofits face to keep the large donors happy. Um, so it responds to regular people, not to the wealthy. So that's one key difference, I think, that MoveOn has from a lot of other organizations. And, you know, I think because of the history of the organization, which always prioritized trying to stay at the cutting edge of technology, uh, I think the organization has always prized having a very nimble culture and being able to be responsive quickly in the moment to political changes and I think the organization's operations and management itself and staff, you know, were built around that. And so that's also, I think, provided a lot of um, benefits to the organization. It's harder to do that, um, in, you know, in a legacy organization that dates back 100 years or whatever, like some of the labor organizations. And Move On also never had a central office. So its costs are always relatively low. So long before everybody worked from home because of COVID, Move on only had a fully remote operation. So when COVID hit, you know, I mean, obviously there was a terrible impact on the country and a lot of the staff were personally impacted by that. But organizationally, it didn't really change the day to day experience that the staff had in terms of having to go into an office or that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot behind that. It seems daunting to me to figure out how to make decisions when you have millions of people as members. There are tons of decisions about how to employ the power that you have aggregated. What do you think about how MoveOn did that? And were there times that you personally didn't agree with the direction? How did you think about those kind of calls? Well, I mean, MoveOn has a requirement that if it endorses a candidate, I think it's over 60% of the members in the candidates area have to be in favor of doing that, you know, through surveying. So MoveOn doesn't make any, its PAC doesn't make any endorsements, you know, without that. So that's one sort of safeguard that the organization has. And then also because all the funding comes for the most part from small donors, from the members, you know, if you get too far away from what the members want you to do, they're not going to support it. And I guess as this, COO move on. Part of me would say this is unfortunate, but there's not some huge endowment or whatever parked behind the scenes that we can just coast for years on not having to fundraise. You know, move on the board and the leadership of move on, you know, really made sure that we were spending the money on program work in real time. And so if the work isn't close to what people want, you know, they're not going to support it. There is a level of accountability, um, which is different than in some other situations. I mean, sometimes, though, people at a moment in time aren't right about what to do. If you're part of the leadership of an organization like that and the activists around the country 
get infatuated with a particular candidate or are really interested in something that maybe isn't politically strategic at the moment. Is there any effort to be act like the wiser head in that in that circumstance if that happens? I would say for me, no, because I've learned over the years that I'm frequently wrong. That's been a little bit of a humbling experience. I've been working in social change organizations for 35 years now. And when I started, I, I sincerely thought that I was going to be part of leading a movement towards a more just society in America. I really thought we were going to be going in a direction of like a multiracial democracy and where workers and working families would be able to live better lives and have some control over their lives. And I think objectively speaking, that's not what's actually happened over the last 35 years. And I'm disappointed in that. And I'm still hoping that that's going to turn around. But I think you could also objectively say that people of my generation haven't had the right answers because we would be doing better otherwise. So I think there's a lot to learn from younger people and people who have different experiences. You know, my kids are now 22 and 24. The kids I mentioned before who I wanted to teach them the right things, they've become activists themselves. And they're quick to remind me of all the times that I'm wrong. And that's, you know, as any parent can tell you, will keep you honest. I have certainly experienced that. I have a 20-year-old and a 13-year-old. And I have they have been better at persuading me to change my mind on things than anyone my age. Yes. And so I've lived through that too. I guess over the years I've learned, you know, sometimes the best way to be a good leader is to be a good listener, you know, to try and um, make sure other people have a chance to have their viewpoint expressed. And I think that builds healthy organizations also. You know, like Move On is a good example of that. I think, you know, under Rana's leadership and Anna before that and Ilya, I think they've all done a really good job at building a more inclusive, you know, staff culture. And I think you can see that in the results. I was reading today about a moderately notable tech company, the people that made Basecamp, which had a third of their staff resign recently because of challenges with internal diversity and expression of political viewpoints and perhaps leadership's inability to understand the changes that are taking place and make space to discuss and change their culture. I noticed that you had led at Move On some internal work to diversify. What is your advice to organizations that are in a point in this point in time facing pressure to improve in the way they treat their own workers? Even progressive organizations that that espouse social justice ideas struggle with this. What have you learned about that? I've learned I'm probably not the right person to be like uh, telling other people how to do that. But, you know, I think live your values, right? If you want to have a different world, uh, you know, that starts at home. And I think that it's also more efficient. You know, if you want to have a winning organization, there's tons of data that shows, you know, diverse groups make better decisions. So just even if your only concern is output, that's another really strong argument of why um, you should build a more diverse organization. And also it's what kind of life do you want to live for yourself and your colleagues? I mean, people spend the majority of their waking hours at work. Don't you want to be part of an organization that where everyone can feel included and people are you know, able to share their opinions and have a say in how things go? 
doesn't seem like it would be that complicated, but it is challenging, I know, for a lot of organizations. It's sometimes challenging because, you know, a lot of times the people who are disgruntled about whatever issues are right and change ought to be made. And sometimes they're wrong, wrong in specific instances. So navigating demands that might not serve the organization is also part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to something we were discussing earlier of, you know, our movement needs to do a better job at training managers to be strong leaders, to be effective managers. It's not, people are not born knowing how to do this. And I, you know, I certainly wasn't. Um, and I was fortunate over the years eventually to get some, get some management training. And I, I think that our movement has underinvested in that. So sometimes I think there's some self level of like, um, you could be doing better as a movement as leaders and as managers and prioritizing equity and prioritizing inclusion and, and being effective. And also in addition to that, sometimes like infighting always, it seems inversely proportional to the stakes. When the stakes are highest, people are focused on their external opportunities. And when they're the lowest, you know, people turn on each other. So how do we stay focused on what the real issues are? How do we stay focused on the opportunities to fight for power in a real way? Sometimes I think that when people get wrapped up in internal conflict, it's probably because they're not thinking big enough on the outside. I think that's highly correct. So you mentioned you got some training. I noticed you went to the Rockwood Leadership Institute, which in my understanding, trains people in the progressive movement, that kind of skill. Is that right? And what was your experience there? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a great experience. And I, I think that Rockwood and you know a number of other progressive organizations and consulting groups, you know, have really added, in my, in my experience, a lot to our movement in recent years at trying to address this deficit of leadership skills and management capacities. Groups like Imagine Us and the Management Center and, you know, a number of others have built systems that are more widely used than in the past. And I've seen that have a big impact. But historically, at least I didn't really see much of that early in my career. What was one or two things that you took away from that training? It's been a while, I know. Yeah, I think the idea of, um, I mean, listening, you'd think, again, that would be something everybody would have learned, like in elementary school, but often that's not the case. Being clear on expectations for others, for yourself, being transparent. How do you make sure the people you work with have visibility into what you're doing? Those who work with me know that I'm a huge fan of feedback, making sure that feedback is an important part of your organizational culture and that people are not afraid of that. I think that's an important equity principle. And I also think it's an important management principle. If you don't tell someone that you'd rather they do something differently, how are they supposed to know? They can't read your mind. And the same for you. Like if the people that work with you, they really know where you could be doing better. And if you can build the trust, have people share that with you, that really improves your performance. I mean, that's an experience that I've had. And again, these are not complicated concepts, but I think that we just as a movement have not always prioritized making ourselves accountable to those. Speaking for myself, I, I'm certain if I'd gone through a program like that, that I would have done a better job in leading. I think I had some very good reflexes naturally that were not, that didn't come from a theoretical background, but came from just reflexes about how to deal with other humans in a decent way. But I got plenty of things wrong, particularly in transparency, where I think my reflex was to sometimes to hold uh, information to myself and make decisions 
in a more solitary way, which, you know, was good when I made good decisions and was bad when other people knew better than me. Well, I've made lots of bad decisions as people who've worked with me can also attest, I'm sure. And when you're under stress or during, you know, peak election moments, for example, you know, move on or in the labor movement, other place that I've worked, people are under a lot of pressure and go weeks without taking a day off. You know, it's hard to be disciplined about taking care of, you know, taking care of yourself and taking care of others around you. We've got to do better in those areas if we, if we want to win. Tell me about why you leave move on and start your own consulting firm. After 35 years working for organizations, I was looking forward to opportunity to be able to work with a broader range of organizations. I spent almost eight years at move on. And as much as I love that and still just feel so proud of the time that I spent there, I was looking forward to being able to support a wider range of other organizations. So I built a practice of fundraising strategy, financial management, problem solving for nonprofits, coaching. And I've got a number of clients who are nonprofit organizations, unions, foundations. And so far, it's been really enjoyable for me. And it's been really nice to be able to contribute in a different way. I don't think it's the healthiest thing for an organization to have one person in sitting in the same role, you know, year after year after year. I think different people bring different strengths. And I was super confident in the leadership at Move On. You know, Cheryl Zando is the COO now. She's fantastic. And, you know, the team there just performing at such a high level that I felt like it seemed like a good time to give someone else a chance. You were pretty connected, but it's generally hard to get a practice like that going. How did you go about finding clients and getting engagements? Well, I continued working at Move On with some capacity support for a while afterwards for several months. And also for the last couple of years before I left, one of the roles that Move On has played in the progressive movement over the years has been one of movement service. Like Move On is also a significant contributor to a lot of other organizations. You know, we fundraise on their behalf. You know, we've often supported other organizations with technical and data support, with security support, and various other ways that we've tried to nurture allies. And part of that over the years had been, um, you know, I had sometimes operated as kind of an informal consultant at the request of MoveOn's executive directors to other organizations. So coaching on financial management, fundraising strategy, governance questions, that kind of thing. So I had built up some relationships through that. And also just over the years, you know, a lot of people that I'm working with now are folks that I knew from the union organizing work. For better or for worse, there's a lot of demand for the financial management, problem solving, fundraising work. Unfortunately, I think there's not that many people who are really committed to progressive politics who just love the operations stuff. And actually, I've, I've realized I really enjoy that. I like that part of the work. And a lot of activists, I think, view it as a bit of a chore. Whereas my wife teases me, I love making sure that our credit card accounts are reconciled at the end of each month and making sure the bills all are paid and the tax returns. Like most people think those are dreadful tasks. I like look forward to doing those things. So I have the right personality for, for this work, I think. What were some of the specific clients that you've brought on and what kind of things have you done for them? I'm fortunate to have had a wide range of clients who I think are doing really interesting work. I'm doing fundraising strategy consulting, you know, for a number of organizations, including Color of Change. I'm working for the Empowerment Project. As I mentioned, I've done some fundraising consulting work for Move On. 
as well as a number of other groups. And then I've got another group of clients that I'm helping with on various forms of like operational and financial capacity building and support, doing some work with the Chicago Teachers Union. I've got some other large national union clients that I've worked with as well. And I've also done some financial and governance work with more traditional nonprofits. I've done some work with this group called BioBus in New York City, which provides supplementary science education for the public school system. Really great organization. And I've actually also got a research project that I'm working on now that's really interesting around investment in progressive technology. And that's been a lot of fun for me, something a little bit different. Investment in progressive technology is obviously something I care a lot about and have opinion on. Can you tell me anything more about what sort of things you're looking at within technology? So there's been a history over the years, companies and organizations that build technology whose purpose is to support progressive organizing, progressive mobilization. Many of those companies have over the years widened their market to larger, more commercial ventures. And I think there's a range of opinions, and you and I have talked about this, about why that is or whether that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing. I think some people feel like, you know, to have the most effective technology for mobilization, companies need to be exposed to the wider market. They need to be bigger. The election and organizing market is relatively small. And so you have to basically allow those organizations to expand to larger sectors so they can build the most effective tools. That's sort of one point of view. Another point of view is unions, nonprofits, foundations fund these organizations. And the purpose of the funding is to build out tools for the progressive movement. And there's some people who feel frustrated that those tools then kind of move away from their original purpose. So from a funder's perspective, what are the right business models for organizations to keep them focused on the mission, but also take advantage of having an innovative organization, being able to raise capital, Some of the models that we've been looking at include different forms of steward ownership, things like a purpose trust, where you might have a traditional for-profit company, but they have a smaller group of shareholders that could be employees, they could be nonprofit organizations, they could be other sort of political actors who limit the purpose of the organization to a particular mission. That would be one version of steward ownership. Another version of it might be a nonprofit organization owning a for-profit organization. And there's some examples of that, you know, in our space where that's been effective. So it's been an interesting project for me, partly because it's a little bit different from some of the more operational and fundraising specific work that I've done in recent years. And I've really enjoyed the chance to do a bunch of interviews with smart people in the space, smarter than me, who have a lot of experience in this area. So it's been been really a lot of fun. Have you come to any conclusions yet about what kind of business models? It sounds kind of like you like this steward ownership idea. Have you have you reached a conclusion or or more conclusions at this point about what you think is a good recommendation? Sure. We're sort of halfway through the process and still talking to folks. So I, don't, I would say no, we haven't come to any real conclusions yet. One thing that's been notable is that pretty much everybody who I've talked to When we ask them, what are some examples of technology companies that you think have stayed on mission and also, you know, are effective as innovative players in the space? They often cite the same three examples, which is Catalyst, which is like a data aggregation entity that a number of nonprofits 
collectively own or through effectively a purpose trust. Another one is ActBlue, which folks will recognize as the payment processing system that a lot of candidates and campaigns use. And another one is Action Network, which is a basically a for-profit owned by a nonprofit, and they offer you know email listserv tools and organizing tools for activists. So that's those the commonality of those three is they all have different flavors of this steward ownership. But that said, there's also a many different, more traditionally organized for-profits that obviously are central to the progressive movement's ability to carry out its work. And so I'm not sure there's going to be a simple answer to the question. Yeah, there, there are a lot of different funders who have taken a strong interest in the progressive technology arena. Uh, I've talked to a bunch of them and there's a bunch that I haven't talked to. Is the one that you're working for keeping this arrangement confidential or can you share who it is? No, I'm I, I'm not able to share the uh, folks who I'm working with on this project, but um, I think the goal is to develop some recommendations that will be shared more widely with a you know, larger group of funders. And I think you could envision an outcome where you know, a group of funders or organizations together collaborate on a shared approach to how they'd like to make technology investments going forward. And whatever that right model is, I guess one conclusion I've made is that, that would be a better outcome than a bunch of groups and funders all doing different things, right? Pooling our resources, I think, is more likely to be successful and might be more likely to generate enough capital that we can really build competitive tools than everyone going their own way. If you could sort of wave the magic wand and design the engagements that you could find, who would you like to help doing what? I'm still learning about what the right fit is. I mean, I've really enjoyed having a, a, a range of different types of activities. I mean, I love the fundraising work. I'm also appear to be one of the handful of people in the progressive movement who really enjoy fundraising. A lot of program people, I think, view it as a chore a little bit. Um, and, um, you know, finding ways to do that so it's effective for the organization and also feels good to the donors. You know, that's something that I think is really important. It brings me a lot of satisfaction. I've also really enjoyed helping put in place just basic operational infrastructure for organizations to help them be more effective. I mean, a lot of people are great activists. They're great organizers. They may have, they might be visionary program people, but, you know, nobody's born knowing how to set up a chart of accounts for their bookkeeping system or what the right auditing systems are to have in place or what type of governance structures they need to run an organization that will withstand an IRS audit, which is something we should all think about given the future of our politics in the U.S. So building some of those systems has been really enjoyable for me. As I mentioned, I've realized how little I know over the years, but what little I've learned, it's been really fun for me to share that with other activists and have a chance to do some coaching and build on some of the experiences that I've had over the years. And, you know, that's been um, very satisfying as well. Well, you've emphasized a couple of times how little you know, but I have gleaned quite the opposite that you probably know quite a lot. One of the things I was wondering about when you were talking about fundraising is I guess it's my observation and the observation of a lot of people that the fundraising on both sides, but I, you know, I care about ours particularly, is a little polluted right now by poor practices that discourage donation at the same time as getting donations in the moment for particular 
causes, party committees, races, nonprofits, etc. There's some serious collective action problems, I think, in that space when there's so many incentives running to scare people into donations or lots of other things that aren't that savory. What do you recommend in terms of doing it the right way that serves both the organization you're talking to and has long-term good consequences rather than bad? What serves organizations in the long term is to respect their donors and, you know, treat their donors and, and prospective donors in the same way that they would want to be treated themselves and not treat them as a cash machine or don't send people things that they haven't asked for. I mean, for one thing, that really doesn't work in the long term. Like maybe it works in the short term. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think of my email box from the last 24 hours, even just from candidates that if I had infinite resources, I got things from 20 candidates today that I should donate to. But some of them, eight email messages with an urgency that makes sense maybe from their fundraising operation, but makes me want to unsubscribe, to be honest. I started out with fundraising software, helping fundraisers be more efficient in making calls. And I wonder about the consequences of all that, of things I did and things that other people are doing on the digital side that may be undermining the foundations we've built this movement on in funding it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think those tactics are short-sighted. I think they alienate people. You know, you mentioned people opting out, of course. And I think you most commonly see those in campaigns that have a very short horizon. You know, the election is in November and they're not trying to build an organization for next year, or five years from now or 10 years from now. Or but fundraising consultants that have learned that way of doing things and serves their business. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's a real problem. And, um, you know, ultimately you need to build a relationship with your donors, whether that's through email or text messaging or on the phone or meeting with them or inviting them to a meeting with other supporters. It's all about the relationship building and some of the tactics you've described, you know, these sort of intrusive messaging is the opposite of that. So I think that the best long-term opportunity to build power is to have strategies which pull people in and make them feel appreciated and respected, not make them feel like they've been sort of scared into making contributions and forced into something at the last minute and, and certainly not to send emails that are Previously, it would be considered spam. Like you didn't sign up for the list, but how, how are you getting this email? I'm kind of personally, I don't know, obsessed, worried, frightened by developments politically in the United States since Trump, something different is going on that we can connect back to many dark moments in our history and many threads that go back, but it feels new to me and it makes this politics so high stakes and it feels like there's a potential for violence and an illiberal government and just a lot of danger. Do you see the world that way right now? How does that affect your practice if, at all? Well, the first line on the COO's job description is worrying. So I'm an expert worrier. So yes, I do see, you know, I do see a lot of danger. I'm not a professional historian, but I certainly have read a lot of professional historians recently pointing to some of the same trends that you've just mentioned. What does it mean that 
the same features of our democracy are deteriorating in, in some of the same ways that in other countries where that's happened before, in Europe in the 30s or Latin America in the 70s and other places. Eastern Europe right now or, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's things that signal a decline of, of democratic health. And yeah, I do, I do worry about that. And I think it means, I think that makes it only more important that we focus on we being people who believe in democracy of everyone having the right to vote and being encouraged to vote and believe that everyone should have a voice and that we shouldn't be targeting people and based on race or based on immigration status, like people who believe in inclusive society, you know, we've got to be more strategic and we've got to really focus on how do we organize outside of our own pods and build a majority in America. Because I think what Trump has shown is people who are against democracy here, it used to be a small fraction of people, you might say, and Trump got 45% of the vote or whatever, twice. I mean, it does seem like depending on how you cobble together a governing majority of people, there are ways to to run this country from an authoritarian right and be successful. You can see how DeSantis is doing that in Florida, which is a state that could be purple. It's a microcosm of the country in a lot of ways, and we can be going that way again. I'm glad you're working on the other side of that. When you look around, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic? I don't know. That's a good question. There's a bunch of famous people over the years who said, you know, to be an activist means by definition to be an optimist. You know, as I've gotten older, it's hard to be as optimistic as I was when I was younger, but there have been other periods of American history where things look bleak and we were able to pull it together. So I think I'm an optimist in the sense that I'm still doing the work. Otherwise, why would you do it if you really didn't think there was any chance of succeeding? I feel like I've witnessed over the years lots of success when people stick together and work collectively and trust each other, be positive about what America could be. Things can't be different. It doesn't have to be like this. I end up coming out of a great proportion of these interviews feeling solidarity with the people that I'm talking to and feeling like if there are all these dedicated humans out there fighting the good fight, it makes me more optimistic, let's just say. It's helpful to me, and I appreciate talking to you in that same vein. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't think so. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> You're a better interviewer than I am, I guess. Uh, well, I think interviewing yourself. I've thought about interviewing myself, and I, I think I might be the least fit person to do that. So <laughs> probably you're right. Although what's interesting about that question is sometimes it generates the most interesting answer. So sometimes it's better if I just pause and let you think about that some more for a second. About, is there a question that phew, I'm glad he didn't ask me this, or I'm surprised he didn't ask me this, or... Anything like that? Um, you could ask me, you know, what my consulting website address is. Although I'll note, I don't actually have a website yet, but I do have a URL. So I'm going to have one shortly. Where will it be, Robert? You can find me at robertfoxconsulting.com. Is Robert Fox your real name? Because Robert Fox to me sounds like a stage name. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, 
Oh, that, like, I appreciate like that. Mars or something, you know, like, which was not his, his original name. It is, it is my real name. Yep. And yeah, it was always, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so much for including me. I really, really appreciate it. It's really nice of you. You're a phenomenally great interviewer. Wow. I can see. I'm impressed with your endurance also that you've done so, so, so many of these. I I am a glutton for punishment. No, the fact is that I, I have just been blessed by the people who I've been able to talk to and how interesting I find them. And that makes interviewing them interesting because it comes from wanting to learn and wanting to share that learning from people like you who've been in the trenches. So it's easy. Wow. That's a modest description for 875 interviews or however many you've had. Uh, you know, I, I, what I've noticed is that people, that's the thing they'll seize on while well, you've done a lot. I rarely get, wow, well, you've done good ones, but I hear a lot of good volume. Yeah, I know you've done very thorough. <laughs> no, it's, it's really, really nice of you to include me. I'm, I'm grateful. Well, it's an honor. That was Robert Fox. Robert is at robertfoxconsulting.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.